0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. And this is, at long last, episode 12, Emma of Normandy. I hope you enjoy the show. Episode we saw the Anglo-Saxon dynasty fall, and a Danish one begin. From the ashes of a failed reign and subsequent death of Eth- Ethelred II, came a spark of hope, with the ascendancy of a man they called Ironsides. And as victory stacked up for this new Saxon king, travesty struck, and within months of taking the crown, he too fell. However, before we get too far into the results of what historians quietly call the Danish conquest of England, I'd like to take our narrative briefly into a flashback, back to the year 1002. There's one person who began her journey throughout this time period then. No, it's not a surviving son or daughter of the old regime, though they too will certainly play roles. In 15 years, unfortunately for Canute, he would be leading a cautiously friendly nation of war-weary Saxons, Angles, Jutes, and settled Anglo-Danes who just spent the last century developing a high society of scheming and vicious maneuvering for placement as near to the throne as possible. If Canute had any chance to smooth out these choppy waters, it would be found in this one person. She would so happen to be connected to a rising star on the European stage, and the world would, within a generation, see this star shine brighter than almost all others. Her name is Emma. Today, we will begin by taking a closer look at the England Emma would first encounter in 1002. I know we've hammered out the events of this time and of the next decade or two, but we haven't taken a look at it outside of a military perspective. Emma offers just such an opportunity. So let's start off by seeing the kingdom of the Angles and Saxons, as Alfred called it, through her eyes. I hope you enjoy the show. 1002. After three days crossing the choppy cold waters between England and her home, Emma watched her attendants, busying themselves making sure that Emma looked her absolute best. She saw she was pulling into port, most likely a village in Kent on the island's southern coast. The weather was cool and partly cloudy. Looking up, she longed for a little warmth from the sun, like she had in Rouen, far to the south. Her brother said England was a cloudier and cooler place than Normandy. As her vessel came to a stop, still bobbing in its own wake, splashing back into the shallow rocky coastline, she saw a contingent of people waiting for her. It was a royal contingent, no doubt, but there was no sign of the man she had come here for. All the same, they were generous enough by sending servants to help unload the goods and treasures from the ship's. Her hair whipped into her face from the salty winds as courtiers hurried around her, constantly moving her gowns out of her way, helping her disembark onto the foreign land. Her first steps onto the land that she would soon reign over. They had a carrier waiting for her. After loading everything, her Norman contingent of servants, soldiers, attendants, and courtiers joined the Anglo-Saxon group. Hard, guttural sounds left their lips as she looked down at her feet. She had people to answer for her. Not only was this decorum, but she was also just a shy teenage girl who had no idea how to handle such a situation. But her despair further deepened the more they spoke. She knew nothing they were saying. How was this arrangement going to work if she couldn't even speak with her new husband or the people she is to rule? but for a flicker of a moment, she thought she heard something. Something recognizable. Yes, a word. A single word. It wasn't exactly like a word she knew, but it was close. And her servant relayed the message she realized she, in fact, did recognize the word. But how? How did this Norman noblewoman recognize a Saxon word? Well, this would be a question she would soon know the answer to. This is how I imagined Emma's disembarkation happened. I simply cannot wrap my head around a time when marrying your teenage sister off for profit and influence was as acceptable as growing a field of corn and selling it to the highest bidder is today. But this was the societal setup of the medieval period. And Emma of Normandy, sister of Richard II, Duke of Normandy, is caught right in the middle of this tangle of webs. She knew very little about this strange land, she probably missed home the moment she left it. She probably looked back one last time across the white-tipped swells of the channel, back to the place she called home, Normandy. She knew her mission, her life's role, the role of the noble woman. And if she played her role just right, not only will her lineage be in a better position at the top of the hierarchy, but so should she. But these people, this land... This was in England where the majority of the inhabitants knew only rumors of another wave of Viking incursions on their island, incursions that were localized to the southern and eastern coastlines mainly. They focused on their fields and their livestock and their wares. They were largely illiterate farmers who knew nothing of the fields of science and mathematics. In fact, Arabic numerals hadn't yet crossed the channel. This is not to say that the English were simpletons, far from it. This was a disjointed kingdom of different peoples speaking different dialects who found commonality in the national myths they shared, the god they worshipped, the names they gave their children, and their love of fellowship and food and drink. We have this notion that the Middle Ages, or really any time period between the the collapse of the Roman Empire and the, the age of the Pirates, were dreary and sad and, well, just like a long winter's nap where nothing much happened. And I suppose, when seen comparatively to the other time periods, it can certainly seem so, but the English might have missed the memo there. Harriet O'Brien, in her book Queen Emma and the Vikings, says, quote, They entertained each other with witty verse about frost, ice, onions, dough, end quote. These were a people who loved risque humor, too. Check this one out from the, the, the Exeter book. What hangs down by the thigh of a man, under his cloak, yet is stiff and hard? When the man pulls up his robe, he puts the head of this hanging thing into the familiar hole of matching length, which he's filled many times before. What is it? It's a key, people. The answer to this riddle is a key. Relax, okay? All right, so this is really a glimpse into the sense of humor, though firmly on the raunchy side of things, that these people had. But it wasn't all toe-on-the-line entertainment. In The Wife's Lament, we experience the far too familiar heartbreak of a wife who's now forced to live without her exiled husband. And then there's Beowulf, the earliest known writing of the English people. About a Danish prince who slew a giant named Grendel and then dealt with the creature's monstrous mother. An English legend about a Danish prince. You know, it just goes to show that the intricacies of the Anglo Saxon Viking connection, you know, from the earliest centuries of the Middle Ages to the moment Emma of Normandy stepped onto the shores of Kent. And Bede, oh, excuse me the venerable Bede, as he's known to history, was an 8th century English monk. Back when it meant to be English was still emerging, you know, as an idea. Bede is credited with the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, an immense document spanning the days before Alfred and well into the Norman restructuring of English society. We've used it on the podcast quite a bit so far. Bede obviously did not write the entire thing, but many believe him to be its originator, a yearly diary of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. But he also wrote much, much more as well. Bede's Death Song was a poem he reportedly wrote on his deathbed. It reads, Facing death, that inescapable journey, Who can be wiser than he who reflects While breath yet remains? On whether his life brought others happiness Or pains, since his soul may yet win delights or night's way after his death day. And finally, among the growing library of English literature was one of the world's most famous, the dream of the Rud. As far back as the 700s, this poem about the cross Jesus died on, side note, Rud was the Saxon word for cross. It was said to have been written on an 18-foot-high cross in Ruthwell, In Dumfrieshire, Scotland, though there was no official Scotland back then, not yet. It was widely spread afterward, and and by 884, Pope Marinus sent Alfred the Great a piece of the true cross, the cross Jesus himself was crucified upon. So, in return for this legitimizing honor, one could say, King Alfred commissioned additional lines to be added to the original. In 1002, Emma took her first steps onto the shores of a wealthy kingdom with a very underappreciated heritage. And let us not forget that people still circulated their version of the the Sleeping King legends about their own legendary hero, of Arthur Pendragon, as well as more recent stories of heroic efforts like King Edgar the Peaceable and, and Britnoth, Elderman of Essex. Emma, no doubt, must have quickly witnessed how industrious her new people were, too. The richest among them enjoyed fine linens and silk from the farthest reaches of the earth, some mythical land called China. Their ports bustled with activity, from ports as far as Al-Andalus and the fabled grandeur of Constantinople itself. Danes, Icelanders, Greenlanders, Wendland Saxons, Norwegians, Swedish, Muslims, Italians, Normans, Franks, the Rus. Byzantine Romans, Jews, Sicilians, the Flemish, Britons, and the Irish. Emma's new people heard a multitude of languages spoken as men disembarked from their ships with loads of precious metals, horses, clothing, spices, perfumes, jewelry, cotton and silk, salt, silver, timber, wine, grains, livestock, wool, and yes, even slaves. It is a sad fact indeed that slaves were largely harvested from Ireland right next door and were sold around Europe and even as far as Baghdad by a variety of people, but but both Vikings and Muslims were the largest players in the game at this time. However, around the 11th century here, there were pretty accurate and trustworthy whispers of a wealthy, prosperous, and highly influential kingdom in the western deserts of Africa that also drummed up their own massive slave-trading empire, among other hot commodities of the day, such as salts and gold. Yes, (laughs) a lot of salt and gold. England was producing goods that were traded in as far-off places as they received goods from. Though around the 11th century, England was a bustling hub of activity, the potential seemed to be bursting at the seams from rocky coast to marshy port. Let's just say in 1002, there was a very valid reason why the Danish had set their eyes on the island tucked up in the northwest corner of Europe proper. Unfortunately for England, it was ruled by the hind end of the House of Wessex. If Alfred a century earlier was the mouth from which sweet hymns of Anglo-Saxon unity were sung, then Ethelred was the Well, you get the idea. Across the channel from Kent was an ancient kingdom. This kingdom was founded by the descendants who gave the likes of Julius Caesar fits in a land the Romans called Gaul. As of the late 700s and early 800s, it was an established power on the northwestern European landscape ruled by a new Caesar named Charles the Great, first of his line, or Charlemagne as history knows him. Charlemagne, King of the Franks for 32 years already, was given the title Emperor of the Romans by the Pope by surprise on Christmas Day in the year 800. From there, his once mighty kingdom fell into disarray that can easily be summed up by the nicknames afforded his descendant kings, Charles the Bald, Charles the Fat, and Charles the Simple. It was a lesson for all of Europe throughout the Middle Ages. Wealth, land, and titles can be inherited. Greatness is not. It must be earned and cultivated and painstakingly maintained. In short, my how the mighty fall. Even the juggernaut kingdom created by Charlemagne can suffer the slings and arrows of fate. Within a century, this mighty kingdom that stretched from the Mediterranean Sea in the south to the Bay of Biscay in the west, and to the English Channel in the North Sea in the North, was feuding, fractured, mess. And worst of all, the Vikings had a century of pillaging and plundering under their battle-axe-laden leather belts. And they'd begun to see the mainland Europe, particularly the Kingdom of West Francia, as an easy target. It was growing in wealth and economic prosperity, sure, but much, much like the England of 1000, it was ruled by weak, and ineffectual kings who more or less bought off the raiders in exchange for just a moment of peace. One man specifically oversaw a raiding party of predominantly Norse Vikings. This chieftain's name was Rollo the Walker, so named because it is said that he was so large, just this tall, muscle-bound presence, that his horse wore out quickly, and he was forced to walk most places. See, Rollo established by way of force and terror and some clever politicking, a territory in northern France, along the English Channel, and bordering the duchies of Brittany, Anjou, and Vermandois, centering his power in the already important river port city of Rouen. This was a very important piece of land as not only did Rollo's northmen control some of the, the most fertile and productive fields and hillsides in the entire kingdom, but it also controlled the mouth of the River Seine which, when traveling along its winding path, led to a major center of power in the kingdom, the seat of the throne of Frankish power, Paris. And for those playing at home, the mouth of the River Seine faced north toward the emerging and recently united Kingdom of the Angles and Saxons under the powerful leader, King Alfred. Fast forward a century, and this new duchy was now a mainstay of Frankish politics. Still not seen as equals to the Frankish elite, these quote-unquote Northmen have endeared themselves to their neighbors in Normandy itself. Nonetheless, by adopting native styles of fashion, delicacies they ate, festivals and customs they shared, and even the French language, the Northmen were now no longer considered barbarians from the icy North. No, they were now Norman, a hybrid of French and Scandinavian, which bled into their fighting styles, social norms, and as well, the words they spoke. And they lived in Normandy, or Land of the Northmen. And after a successful century of these Normans jockeying for legitimacy amidst a somewhat hostile kingdom, in the year 1002, Normandy was ruled by Richard II son of a ruler named Richard the Fearless, which should give a little hint as to the constant struggle the Normans had as they clawed for recognition as more than just mere barbarians. Despite his nickname, Richard Le Bon, or Richard the Good, Richard II wasn't exactly the nicest guy at first, similar to Edmund Ironside's, but he was an effective ruler who sought expansion and prosperity for his people, he was the descendant of the Great Rollo, much like his counterpart in England was the descendant of Alfred the Great. These two and their parallels are a study in dynastic continuity for sure. Richard II took over as Duke of Normandy in 996, just six years before the marriage he would orchestrate between England and Normandy. During his minority, or the period in which a ruler is too young to take full reins of the domain, he looked to his uncle Rodolphe, Count of Ivry, for counsel and decision-making, much like Ethelred did when he became a king a few decades earlier. In fact, around 996, tempers flared after years of local barons and other leaders pushing for more control over and production from Norman farmers and merchants, the first significant stirrings of feudalism. According to an 1839 manuscript by Jonathan Duncan, those peasants in charge of this minor revolt were severely punished, Rodolphe of Ivry by having had their hands and feet severed, as well as being blinded, burned alive, and having the removal of their land deeds to boot. Thankfully, after this violent event at the outset of Richard II's reign, he earned the nickname Le Bon, Fairly, because Normandy saw a largely prosperous few decades afterwards, mainly due to the Duke's clever politicking. Richard's father, Richard I, or Richard the Fearless, had many children by his wife Gunnar, a noble lady born in Rouen. Two of them, of course, were central to our narrative here. But they had other less known, but still strategically placed children too, such as Robert II, Archbishop of Rouen, and Marget, Count of Corville, among others. Now, giving credit where it's due to his predecessors, but it was Richard II who would really push Normandy forward in its mission to enter into and secure a position among the elite ruling families in Europe. After marrying Judith of Brittany, he would sire six children, and among them would be Richard III and Robert Le Diablo, who would reposition Normandy, in the late 1020s, as well as Alice and Eleanor, who would be married off to the counts of Flanders and Burgundy, respectively, thus expanding Norman influence and prestige. But along with many of his genetic and cultural cousins across Scandinavia, England was never far from his mind. Besides his daughters, Richard II was also maneuvering the House of Normandy across Europe by way of his sisters, Alice and Eleanor, and Emma. Like it or not, noble women were raised and groomed for just such a role in royal life. Most of the time, they were married off to secure relationships between more powerful royal families, or even hostile ones. Love was simply not a concept at this point in the arena of medieval courtship. Richard's sister Matilda was married to the Count of Shaw, just southwest of Paris, and Hawise was married into the House of Rennes to the west of the Duchy of Brittany. But his other sister, Emma, she would serve a role that would echo for the next 1,000 years. Unlike these important houses into which her sisters were married, the King of England, he bowed to no one. His allegiance was to himself and to his noblemen. There was no overlord. He was at the top of his branch of the social and political food chain, and Æthelred II, regardless of his position opposite the ruthless, invasionary fleets of the latest wave of Scandinavian Vikings, held a firm role on the upper echelon of European hierarchy. The mere prospect of her marriage to Ethelred was a powerful vindication Echoing back more than a century, back to Rollo himself, as to Normandy's legitimacy. That, and it's not as if Ethelred and Richard II were exactly friends, either. During the 990s, Richard II made the strategic choice to allow Viking ships to have safe harbor in their northern ports. This forced Ethelred, who was already financially bleeding his people dry, trying to pay for these Danegeld, to make a bold deal to someone who's deliberately aiding and abetting his violent attackers year after year. Ethelred offered his handed marriage to a Norman noblewoman, specifically Emma, of course, in exchange for Norman ports to close their harbors to Viking ships. It was too good for Richard to pass up. Keep in mind, this comes on the heels of a very... Ethelredian blunder in the year 1000 when he created a Saxon navy and sent them to attack Normandy well being butt of the cosmic joke Ethelred's navy well it didn't go as planned when the large fleet set out bad weather forced half of the boats to about face and returned to Kent and many boats sunk in that maneuver the rest continued on and made it to Norman shores and began raiding they sacked town after town before realizing it, that it wasn't actually Normandy at all. It was the Duchy of Brittany. And rumor has it that many of the English raiders realized the sad state of their leadership and disappeared into the lowlands there in Brittany, supposedly assimilating to the life of the natives. (laughs) They've had enough, apparently. (laughs) But seriously, no one out Ethelred's Ethelred, that's for sure. After... Uh well, I mean, can we call it hostilities toward Normandy? All right, well after the disillusion of Ethelred's fleet and probably a good hearty laugh from Richard II, Ethelred was willing to try anything. This was the situation in which young Emma, sister to the Duke of Normandy, came of age. And this was the relationship that Emma would marry into. This would be a challenge. The challenge, whether she had any forethought or not of tying together two royal families inseparably. The moment Emma left Norman Shores, the fate of her people rested in her hands. And the moment Emma stepped foot on English Shores, the fate of those people rested in her hands. Throughout history, women were used as tools for expanding influence and binding two nations together. And though I would never argue the inherent injustice of this practice, I would also never argue the vast and severely underappreciated role women played in history. Emma, like so many women after her, was a victim of this political chess game. But she set so many precedents throughout her life that the women who came after her could only learn the lessons. Her main lesson? Survive. Survive at all cost. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the Normandy that Emma left in the England that she stepped foot on. Thank you all for downloading and listening. Our numbers keep increasing which is a testament to all of you, so please, keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter at Wheel Podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook. Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I update these pages weekly, and I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, which I check almost daily. When her teenage feet touched English sand, she would become a survivor. Before she met her soon-to-be husband, she became an agent of change, though at first she must change herself. On her way to her wedding, which happened, we can only assume, pretty shortly after her arrival, Emma would be forced to accept the role of foreigner in this land and embrace the idea that the only reason she's here is because this king couldn't handle his own problems himself. Women, as we will as we will learn in the next episode, had certain expectations that fly in the face of our 21st century understanding of equality and fairness, and one of them was to speak only when spoken to in public. Emma, judging by the life she's to lead beginning in 1002 when history first meets her, well, when you're quiet most of the time, you're able to listen. Like, a lot. You learn to listen to certain people, and you learn to to form specific narratives which you can whisper in people's ears. On the next episode, we find Emma standing at the altar in Canterbury. She doesn't know it yet, but from this altar, she will set off on a voyage that will cause her to navigate some of Europe's roughest waters. I can't wait to tell you about it.